Trigger warning. This podcast episode contains discussions of a highly sensitive nature, including suicidal thoughts and the failure of kidney transplants that may be triggering for some individuals. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact your GP, the GP Out of Hours service, or call the NHS on 111, or go to your local A&E, or call Suicide Prevention Support for your country. For the United Kingdom, the number available 24 hours a day for the Samaritans is 116123. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast in partnership with Kidney Care UK. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, related chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. My guest today from Lancashire, England, is the current chair of the Renal Patient-Led Advisory Network, Bez Awan. Bez shares about having CKD from birth, receiving three kidney transplants, and the lessons he has learned along his kidney warrior journey. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. How are you doing today, Fez? Hi, Dee. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really looking forward to our interview today. As everyone knows, and you know, I'm, you know what I'm about to say. I love recording Kidney Warrior stories because, as I've said so many times before, there's so much you can learn from someone's story, someone's lived experience with CKD. And yes, my interview today with Fez, I've really been looking forward to because We've tried to arrange this before and didn't work out, but finally today it's happening and I'm, I'm really excited to hear your story. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my first question. And my first question is, how did your kidney warrior journey begin and how were you diagnosed? So I was diagnosed pretty much at birth. So I was born with CKD. My kidneys basically failed due to reflux. So there was a blockage at my bladder. My urine wouldn't empty and it kept going backwards, hence like the reflux. It kept going back to my kidneys and inevitably my kidneys got damaged to the point where I needed transplants and further care and stuff like that. So yeah, it was kind of when I was a baby, really. So you've never known anything other than CKD really in terms of your health literally from day one no so basically yeah i don't know if it's a gift or a curse but yeah i was born this way i guess so yeah i don't know any different i don't know what it's like to be inverted commas normal so yeah this has been my life since yeah day dot basically so from a very very young age you were navigating your ckd journey so as a baby, as a toddler, a young, young child, did you start dialysis at a young age or was that when you were older? To be fair, when I was younger, a lot of the 
pressure was more on my parents because I was so young. A lot of it I don't remember. Some I do have some vague memories here and there. And then a lot of the stuff is things I've been told by my parents or as I grew up, I learned whilst I was in pediatrics. So like, for example, the first time they tried to correct the blockages, I was six weeks old. And that's when I had my first kind of procedure slash operation. I obviously don't remember that because I was six weeks old. But I was told about it and my mom used to keep a diary and stuff like that. So I kind of learned a lot about how what happened when I was younger through my parents, through my pediatric team, when I was in peds. And I think for me, I started to become more aware around primary school age, roughly around seven, maybe even six. But yeah, a lot of the earlier stuff when I was very little, it's things I've been told or things I've read from my mom's like diaries that she used to keep about my health. And again, the pediatric team. I did PD for a little while before my first transplant, but it was a very short amount of time. Fortunately, I think if I remember correctly, it was about a couple of months on PD. So it wasn't too long. I had quite a few issues more in regards to nutrition and having to use an NG tube, so a nasogastric tube, to make sure my fluids, I wasn't getting too much. Everything was kind of measured out. And also I wasn't grabbing onto my mother. I don't know what the correct expression is when a baby doesn't latch to the mother properly. I wasn't doing that, so the milk had to be expressed and then fed through an NG tube, and I was very underweight. So there were a lot more kind of trying to keep me at a stable weight with stable like nutrition and things like that because I was quite frail when I was young. So you mentioned that your mom kept diary entries of your health as a young baby. So what did you learn from your mom's diary entries? So I think what I learned from my mom's diary entries are the things that kind of happened to me when I was like six weeks old and 10 weeks old and 12 weeks old and the kind of procedures I had to have done, which I can't pronounce very well if I'm totally honest. And, you know, things like when I had my second procedure, I did have some blood loss. So that's when we found out my blood group was B negative, for example. In one of the other procedures when I was about nine, ten weeks old, because I have a Muslim background and I'm Muslim, they also did my circumcision at the same time. So little things like that, little weird things, how much I weighed approximately at the time, how many mils was expressed for my NG tube feeding. Yeah, things like that really. So how did your CKD affect your childhood, your schooling, socializing with other children? Well, I guess by the time I reached primary school, I had had my first transplant. So I had my first transplant when I was three years old on April Fool's Day. So it almost didn't happen, but thankfully it did. And that is also when I first ate solid food as well. So I was three years old when I first had solid food. Really? Um, So you went... So many years before having solid food. Yeah, that is correct. I guess the main things I kind of started to notice 
when I kind of hit primary school age was A, people didn't have scars and I did. B, due to medications I was on, I was much rounder than other people, I guess, in a nice, polite way. And also my hair growth was a lot more rapid than young people my age at that point. I was also having to catheterize, so I had to leave lessons to go catheterize. And I had to actually go to the staff room to do it because it was a bit more cleaner than the toilets used by pupils. So um, for people who don't understand what is having to catheterize, what does that mean? So catheterization is basically when you pass a tube, sometimes a little hole is made or a stoma where you can pass the catheter through and it goes into your bladder and empties your bladder. And sometimes you can pass the catheter through your normal, I guess, access, whether you're male or female, your normal access. And again, it goes up to your bladder and your bladder empties, but you kind of pass a catheter or a tube into your bladder because I wasn't emptying my bladder naturally, which was causing a lot of UTIs. It was recommended that I catheterize to try and get those last bits of urine that I wasn't emptying properly. So it would help with the UTIs, which is a urinary tract infection. So it would try and help me not get as many urinary tract infections or UTIs. So this is why I had to catheterize. So yeah, in prime school, I noticed other children weren't catheterizing. Other children didn't have scars on their stomach. Other children weren't as hairy as me. Other children weren't as round-faced as me. Other children weren't leaving class so they could go to the bathroom. And whilst I was obviously noticing this, I'm sure other children started to notice this, especially when it came to my appearance being different. And that's probably where the name calling kind of started and teasing and the bullying and things like that. So yeah, I guess primary school age, it kind of really hit me that I was not like other children and not like other people in my age group and I was different. I can't imagine how difficult that was having to deal with both the physical impacts of your CKD and also having to deal with the bullying that came from the physical impact of CKD. You went on to have a second transplant. Tell me about how that came about. So as mentioned, I had my first transplant when I was three years old. And generally that worked very well. Yes, I did have UTIs and bladder issues I had to deal with. But generally that transplant went very well. It lasted approximately 10 years, roughly. I was in high school at the time. I believe I was either in my second year or my third year. I can't fully properly remember. And I was starting to feel ill. I was kind of not feeling great. I had fever. I was being sick now and again. I wasn't keeping food down very well. So basically my parents were like, okay, he's obviously not well. Let's take him to the hospital. And they were like, yeah, his kidney is rejecting and he will need a second one. At the time I was in high school, as mentioned. 
So that's, I guess, I had to try and figure out how I was going to navigate high school. And for me, at least, it would be the first time of dealing with kidney failure because I was so young the first time. I don't remember it. And I don't remember like the processes I had to go through and the tests and things like that. So for me, I guess the second time was really my first time. And that's where I really kind of learned a lot about what it's really like being on dialysis and feeling weak and anemic and not being able to attend school as much because you're feeling unwell and your energy levels and cramping and itchiness and all of those myriad of things that can potentially happen for someone. I was kind of learning whilst trying to also attend high school and be as normal as possible. There's so much there to unpack in terms of being a young person and having all of those different challenges to deal with. I mean, you mentioned about things like the itching, say, for example. I've seen many people talk about experiencing itching as a kidney patient, and it might sound to people quite surprising, but actually it can be quite distressing, the effect that it has and the discomfort that it causes you as a kidney patient. How did, and I think it might be useful for some people to actually find out, how did you cope with that? Did you have a medication or a cream that helped with that? How did you cope with that situation? So when I was a teenager, I think I leaned a lot on my family at that point. And again, because I was still in pediatrics, the conversations and the ways to treat things, whether that be anemia, whether that be itch, etc., it felt like it was done in a more holistic way. Like they weren't just talking to me, but they were also including my parents into it. Sometimes my siblings or aunts or uncles or whoever it might be within my circle. So it didn't feel as much like the pressure was just on me. Generally, at that time period, it was moisturizing creams that did seem to help. I think because I was going through puberty as well, there were other things that also needed to be sorted out. So at the time, although yes, the itch was annoying. For me, at least, there were other pressing issues that I wanted to try and deal with as much as I could. So, for example, I was very short, shorter than I am now, which is hard to believe. But yeah, so I had to take an artificial growth hormone, which again was an injection into my thigh. And I'm not great with needles. I wasn't Especially then, I wasn't great with needles. So as well as having stuff for my anemia, I had to take this growth hormone. So it was kind of stabbing myself twice, I guess. So yeah, we ended up doing weird things in the family to try and numb the area where I was going to inject these things. And the itch, although again annoying, didn't seem as big of a deal as putting a needle into myself or having to put two needles into myself, whatever the case may have been. So that was more of a kind of weird thing that I had to get through 
which at the time for me was probably worse than the itch because I had never had to inject myself before. And that was a weird and new experience to learn and go through. But yeah, generally for the itch moisturizers, for the growth hormone, it was an injection. For the anemia, I believe it was also an injection, if I remember correctly. And then I had all my pills and portions as well to kind of help me with diet and things like that, phosphate binders, etc. So yeah, it was a myriad of things. And then also trying to be a normal 13, 14 year old was also on top of that. And it was just, when I think about it more and more, it's like, wow, that was actually a lot. But then at the time it was just like, it was my normal, so it's like, yeah, okay, cool, this is going to happen, let's just get on with it. It's fine, it's no problem. But now, in retrospect, it was like, wow, okay, that was quite a lot. So in terms of your growth, was that impacted by your CKD? I believe so. So if I can remember correctly, the growth hormone, I believe, is released at the kidney or near the kidney or something. So obviously, because my kidneys were damaged, the hormone that is used when you grow wasn't being released. So hence why I had to take it artificially. So yeah, I believe they were interlinked. I don't 100% remember how they were interlinked. Yeah, but they were from what I can remember. It was a long time ago. (laughs) So I did PD. For about 18 months to two years, approximately, during high school years. Initially, I was doing exchanges, but that became very impractical, trying to take equipment to school and stuff like that. And then I was changed to APD, so automated peritoneal dialysis, where a machine kind of does it. During that time, my father also decided to do the workup to be a live donor to myself because he realized I was missing a lot of schooling and I was kind of suffering quite a lot. So he went through the testing whilst I was on PD. And in May, so it was May the 4th, so it's Star Wars Day. So May the 4th in the year 2000, I received my father's kidney, which was my second transplant. And initially things weren't great. So in the first couple of years, which ended up also being my GCSE years, so I missed like a lot of GCSE schooling and stuff. I ended up getting CMV for the first time and kind of learning what CMV was and how it affects you and things. I had a couple of bouts of rejection and I also ended up getting meningitis and also something related to meningitis, which I believe was called encephalitis. So how it was explained to me was one is swelling of the brain and one is swelling of the brain lining. I don't remember which is which, but a lot of people think of the rash when it comes to meningitis. I didn't get a rash. So that, I guess, made it a bit more difficult to diagnose or figure out what it was. And then during that period as well for a very short period and I was also admitted at the time so it may have been interactions with medications and things like that I started fitting so that was another thing they had to try and figure out like why is he fitting and 
what can we do and is it caused because of this or yeah but thankfully i was admitted at the time when i had my first bit and it's not been a long-term issue thankfully and it got kind of settled when i was younger at the time i had these issues but yeah they also i don't know someone up above i guess kind of decided let's throw this in as well and you know let's see if you can handle that but yeah so it was a very weird time but thankfully after about two years maybe my father's transplant did start to settle somewhat and i started to get to a normal life you have really faced some massive challenges in your childhood to go through so many different complications cmv meningitis encephalitis wow you've been through so so much that must have been such a difficult time for you and your family how did you cope with all of that at such a young age not amazingly if i'm totally honest there were periods where i had dark moments i had dark thoughts I guess the politically correct way nowadays is to say I did think about unaliving myself. I didn't like my life. I always, and I'm, I'm sure there are many other people with conditions as well who sometimes may think this, but like, why me? So yeah, it wasn't all beds of flowers and roses, etc. There were times that were very tough. I did have support, thankfully, not just family members, but medical professionals as well, who would talk to me and try to alleviate my issues and give me a safe space to talk in. So that did help quite a lot. But yeah, I think, you know, when you're a teenager, life is quite difficult anyway. Like you have lots of hormones going on. You have school and general peer groups and what can and can't happen. Again, bullying and things that can and can't happen. And I think the way bullying has changed or name calling has changed is, I guess, different now for, I guess, this generation of young people. There wasn't really Facebook and Twitter and all those kind of things when I was younger. And I totally understand I'm showing my age now. But it was done more to my face. So it was very much more of a direct impact straight away. And sometimes I would lash out, which I understand is not always the correct way to do things. And I totally accept that. And then sometimes I would just take it and run away and go hide and have a cry somewhere and then try to get back to class again as normal. So yeah, it was very up and down. It was, I think. As much as it was distressing for me to try and deal with, I think it was distressing for my parents to see this happening to me. And there wasn't a lot they could do apart from obviously be supportive and be there. But there were no practical things that they could do to make it go away and make me fine and make me healthy. So yeah, it was kind of hard it was weird but yeah i guess what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and it didn't kill me and therefore i am stronger but yeah i guess that's what it was kind of like i've never 
really in depth thought about it and maybe one day I might if I can manage it and really go into depth about how things in people's childhood can manifest and then make them think about okay this is where I am now at 30 question mark and it may have been because of what happened when I was 12 13 14 etc but yeah I I personally try to not think about it too much and just try to live my life the best I can in the situation I'm in now for any young person or the parents of a young person that may be listening to this podcast, what advice do you have to them who may be dealing with bullying or going through a difficult time whilst also navigating their CKD? I think it's very hard to give advice to such a broad spectrum of people because everyone's circumstances will be different. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think the way people get bullied sometimes is a lot more different than when it was when I was younger. For me, it was done face to face and I handled it then and there, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. Sometimes it ended up with fighting, etc. Anyway. So I think the way people can get picked on, can get bullied, can get name-called is different. I would say try and talk to as many trusted adults as you have around you. Also, if you can reach out to people who are in a similar condition, so whether that be similar people with, you know, people with CKD who are your kind of age range, who may be going through similar things, that generally helped. At the time, I didn't know anyone else with CKD. So it was very isolating. And I don't think that helped. I think it would have been beneficial to being able to talk to someone else with CKD. And the only time I did meet other people with CKD was when I was in hospital or when I was admitted on the pediatric ward because that ward was for renal patients. Otherwise, once I was home or once I was in school or once I was in my own area, I didn't know anyone else. So I think try to find adults who you trust, who you respect, who give you the space and time to be able to talk about what you are going through. And if possible, obviously geographically might be different for everyone, but if you can find people who may potentially be going through what you may be going through. It's a lot easier now because we have social media. You have, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., etc. So it may potentially be easier to find other people who have CKD and talk to them and see how they potentially navigate things and or the way they do things and the way they're navigating things. Would that work for you? Would that not work for you? And then discuss that with those adults, whether that be a parent, whether that be a guardian, whether that be a counsellor at school, whoever it may be. It might be an aunt, an uncle who you feel more comfortable talking to. So try and find those people in your life where you can go and talk about your issues and talk about your problems and try to find ways 
can navigate the life that you want to live the best way you can. So as you got older, started college, went on to study at university, how were those years for you? So I guess once I left high school, obviously, out of all the things that happened after kind of my dad's transplant and things finally settling down, by the time they did settle down, I was kind of, basically GCSEs were over, so it kind of messed up my GCSEs. So I wasn't sure what kind of grades I would get and things like that. There were some exams I had to miss because I I was admitted. I found out later in life, if you tell the hospital, they should be able to write to the examining board and explain to them that this patient or this person is in hospital and therefore that's why they have not attended examinations, etc. At the time, I didn't know that, which may have probably made my results worse than they were. But again, I learned that now, maybe a little too late, but if that helps someone out there, that'll be good for them. But yeah, I didn't get the results I thought I was going to get. I was very disappointed at the time. But I was fortunate enough to carry on and go to college. And it went fine. Things were very normal. Things were stable. Life was good. I was meeting new people, made new friends, did my course as normal. And again, did quite well at college and therefore applied and went to university. I did take a gap year so I could save a bit of money. So I did a couple of retail jobs and things like that. But yeah, then applied for university, went to university. And again, the first year, really good. It was my first, I guess, taste of freedom. So like, I was away from home. There was no parents. There were no siblings, aunties, uncles, etc. I was free to do what I wanted. And the first year went really well. I was managing to do everything I needed to do, making friends, socializing, obviously going to lectures and handing in things on time. There was this one time, but anyway, but yeah, generally handing everything in on time and it was good. It was great. And then the second year started and I was like, okay, cool. I'm getting the hang of this. I've got a routine. I've got a pattern. I'll just carry on as I was. And generally I did. I think it was around, it might have been just after the Christmas term before the Easter term in my second year, I started to feel a bit unwell. Now, generally, I had noticed in my first year and towards the beginning of my second year, after each holiday period, I would feel a little bit unwell. And I put that down to people going home and then coming back and then, you know, maybe having some fresh germs to spread about. So I just thought, oh, you know, it'll be one of those things again and it'll be fine. And then, you know, have a bit of rest and a couple of paracetamols and drink plenty and take my tablets and I'll be fine in a week or so. I wasn't. It just started to get worse. So I was not keeping down my food. My bowels are very loose. I had fever. I was very achy. But I was also quite strong-headed as a young man and I didn't want to tell my parents that I was unwell I wanted to like kind of prove I can do this so it ended up being my housemates that rang my parents and they were like he's really not good like 
he's not eating, he's not going to his lectures, etc. So my parents just turned up at my door one day because I was not expecting them, obviously. And they looked at me and just said, you look very pale. So I'm South Asian. I'm kind of a darker complexion generally. For them to tell me I looked pale was a bit weird. So yeah, they basically took me straight to the hospital I was under at the time. They did some blood tests, checked my urine, etc. And my creatinine had shot up to about 900 and something. Wow. Um, yeah, which is very high. Very um, high. Yeah. So they admitted me straight away and they were like, yeah, you're not going back to uni yet. I was like, okay. So I was admitted. I was given emergency hemodialysis. So a shunt was kind of put into my leg for about two weeks or so. I was on IV medication. I think they must have changed some other medications as well to, I guess, to salvage what they could. Basically, at the end of this kind of two weeks, three weeks of having emergency hemo and IV drugs and all the rest of it, they basically said the function that has been lost is not recoverable and the function that you do have remaining is eventually going to keep getting lower and you will eventually need a third transplant. Yeah, so that was kind of a shock and weird. And I guess that also kind of meant that because I needed to potentially stop hemo. And again, it was a very fluctuating time frame. Like it could happen in a month. It might happen in six months. It might happen in, they weren't really sure. So they wanted me nearby at home just in case, God forbid, it did happen in like a week. So I had to withdraw from university, return back home. Again, another, I guess, dark period of my life of oh, what am I going to do? Because I did not qualify on what I was studying. I had no real, like, GCCs didn't really go very well, as previously mentioned. And it just seemed, apart from college, my education route had been interrupted, I guess is a nice way to put it, with CKD. And again, I kind of had dark moments and dark thoughts. And again, very similarly to when I was younger, but this time I was in adults, so I had to deal with it like an adult. And yeah, it wasn't fun. It wasn't great. Sometimes I do think, of, and I'm guessing other people have this as well, but what life could have been like if this didn't happen at this time, or if this didn't happen at this time. So I guess I returned home as, I don't know, maybe one of my brothers would say as a miserable kid, because I was miserable, admittedly. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I got very down in the dumps. I had similar thoughts to earlier on, but this time again, as mentioned, as an adult, and I had a conversation with my mother and in a nutshell, she was basically, I understand why you're upset. I understand why you're having these thoughts and you kind of have two choices. You can carry on and 
stay in bed all the time and curse the world and curse why you are like you are and why you have the illness you have and it's not fair, etc. Or you can try and do something very tiny and maybe go for a walk in the local park, get a bit of fresh air, clear your head a little bit, maybe volunteer somewhere, you know. And she kind of gave me these kind of options of things I could do, etc. I did eventually, not straight away, admittedly, but I did eventually do did take her advice because I've really realized moms are generally right about stuff. We should listen to them more. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah. yeah. So I did. I started volunteering at a local youth center. I hadn't quite started dialysis yet. But through that youth center, I got some youth work qualifications, which was handy and give me a bit of peace of mind of, okay, worse comes to worse. If I can do nothing else in life, I could potentially do this. But then I did have to start dialysis and I wasn't able to keep up with the energy of these young people. A fistula was created. And this time I had to do hemodialysis. So initially in my head, again, going back a little bit when they said you might need to do dialysis again, I was like, oh, that's easy. Because I've done it before. I've done PD. That's fine. No problem. But then they turned around and like, yeah, PD might not be sufficient this time because you will have scarring on your peritoneum due to the previous PD. So you'd have to do hemo this time, hence the fistula. So I was like, okay, so now I'm going to have to learn about hemo. So yeah, fistula was created. I guess the short version is initially I was doing in-center. I did not enjoy in-center for a couple of reasons. So that was a very short stint. And then from other patients I have got to know because the internet was invented and I was a bit older and I got to meet people. I found out about home dialysis. So I asked if I could do home dialysis and my dialysis team were great. They were very accommodating. They understood that I still wanted to live somewhat of a normal life. And to be able to give me that control and to give me that, I guess, power back to me to be able to control what I'm doing at home as long as I wasn't being stupid, they empowered me to do that. So I obviously had to do the training, had to learn to needle myself, which again was a bit weird. Set up the machine, strip the machine and all the things goes with learning to do home hemo. And then I started doing home hemo. And I kind of started to realize, okay, I'm doing four-hour sessions. Sometimes I would do five. But it was still taking up a large chunk of my day because I'm going to have to set up, I'm going to have to strip down, I'm going to have to clean this. And it was taking quite a big chunk of the day. And I was thinking, surely there must be a more, more productive way of doing it while still being able to have at least my days free. So yeah, I thought there must be a way of being able to do dialysis, hemodialysis. And then I remembered, A, I used to do nocturnal PD. And then I found out also from other people who have CKD that it is possible to do hemo nocturnally as well. And I was like, ah, okay. So then I approached my renal team again and I was like, so can I do this nocturnally, please? 
And they were like, yeah, we don't see why not. You're very competent doing it at home. Your blood results are really good. You're not missing sessions. Your weight is stable, etc. If you want to do it nocturnally, sure, not a problem. We will have to adjust a few things, like the heparin in the machine, for example, so the blood doesn't clot in the machine. But yeah, was the answer in short. And I was like, cool, okay, more control, more power, more cleaning, awesome. So when I was about to start nocturnal, maybe two weekends before I was about to start, my buzz in my fistula went away. So then I had fistula issues. So then I ended up getting admitted eventually. Um, and they tried to salvage my fistula. In the space of maybe a week, two weeks, they did maybe three different types of procedures to try and salvage it. So the way I remember it is ballooning it, cleaning it, I'm putting some mesh on it. And that's the easiest way I can remember. I'm sure there are medical terms for this of what they did, but that's how I remember it. But none of these worked. So then my fistula failed and I ended up with a CVC line or a neckline. Some people may know it as, and I started doing nocturnal dialysis with a neckline. There were discussions about creating another fistula on my other arm, but I was quite adamant that I was going to keep my line. Now, for some people, a line is very annoying, and I totally accept that. For me personally, it was more practical. There were conversations about infection control, and potentially if you do get an infection, it could be very, very, very serious. And I totally take that on board and I totally understand. But I was at home. So the people coming into contact with me was very minimal. It was basically my mother or my brother. Also, when I was connecting and disconnecting from the machine, there was no one in the room. So it was literally just me. And that would be points where the line is open. So yeah, I kind of, in essence, had this conversation with my team and said, I want to keep it. If it's not broke, then let's not have another procedure on my other arm that's not needed or potentially not needed. If something does go wrong with my CVC line, for whatever reason, we cross that bridge when we get to it. But I'm kind of settled with the line. I don't mind it too much. I understand I have to wear pouches when I'm having a shower. I understand I can't get it wet. I understand I have to keep it clean and I'm happy to take those responsibilities on. I'm happy to do that, but I'm not having another fistula when I have access that is working. So unless there is an issue with that, I'm keeping my CBC line. After some negotiations and conversations, it was agreed I could keep my CBC line. There was one occasion where it needed to be changed. But that was because there was a kink. And when they showed me the scan, it was like a coat hanger. So I'd kinked like a coat hanger. And I was like, oh, okay. So they were like, we can replace it. Or, and I knew they were going to say, oh, we can build a fistula. And I was like, yeah, cool. Let's replace it. And that's as far as I wanted that discussion to go. So we replaced it. And then that other second one kind of 
survived until July 2020 when I had my third transplant. So rewinding slightly, so why were you so determined not to have a second fistula? Why did you want to keep the CVC line? So the reasons I personally was adamant to keep my line, it was easier for me to connect or disconnect. I didn't have to put needles in myself anymore. And I wanted to keep my other arm for as long as I may potentially need it because this is the third time I was going through this cycle of kidney rejection, kidney rejection. And I'm thinking in the future, if I need access, it would be nice to have an arm handy for that access rather than having to use a leg or a graft or the other ways that are possible to get access. So the line was in, it was working, it wasn't causing me issues. I was getting my dialysis done adequately. So in my mind, it was like, why mess anymore with my body in any way when we have this access that is working? Let's just leave it alone. Let me dialyze. I'll do everything I'm told to do, whether that be, you know, dialyze three times or four times or five times or whatever it may be. I'll do my bloods as requested. You know, I'll, you know, keep the renal diet as requested. I'll keep the fluid allowance as requested, et cetera, et cetera. But let's not mess with my other arm because God forbid I may need it again in another five years, 10 years, 15 years. And we have access here that is working. So let's just stop trying to fix things that don't need fixing. So you went on to have a third transplant. How did that come about? So my third transplant, again, I guess was memorable, but for a very strange reason. So my first one, as mentioned, April Fool's Day, which almost didn't happen, but then did, thankfully. My second one was May the 4th in the millennium. So Star Wars Day. So easy to remember. This time around, it happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. I initially thought, and again, because I was home dialyzing, I wasn't leaving the house anyway. Everything I needed was at home. And as far as I was aware at that time, the transplants were not happening. They had been because of the global pandemic. So I was not expecting any calls. As far as I was aware, stay inside, carry on doing dialysis and wait for this to all blow over. Little did we know it was going to take ages to blow over. But yeah, um, so I was not expecting a call. I was not prepared for it. And then in July 2020, randomly at like, I don't know, it may have been five o'clock in the morning, maybe, or four o'clock. And I was dialyzing at the time. My mom came and brought me the phone and she was like, it's for you. And I was like, what? Who's ringing me at four or five o'clock in the morning? So yeah, I was still very much half asleep and they were like, hi, can you please come to the transplant center that is near me? We may have a transplant for you. And I was like, there's a global pandemic and I've been told to stay inside as much as possible. I think you might have got the wrong number. And they were like, no, we have restarted the transplant program and we believe we may have one that is suitable for you. Can you please come in? Then I kind of explained to them, I'm on my machine, I'm home dialyzing. I am happy to come in. 
but what is the process because global pandemic? So they explained that a little bit. They said they'd ring back in about half an hour, 45 minutes, give me time to get off the machine and kind of mentally be aware that I have got this phone call. So yeah, I got off my machine and they rang back and they were like, so basically you come to the hospital, you get dropped off at the main entrance. No one can come in with you. Please come in masked. Bring everything you may think you may need. So, you know, phone charger, laptop, etc. Because once you're in, you're not leaving until you're discharged. Obviously, clothes and towels and all that kind of jazz. But any kind of communication devices you might need to communicate with people in the outside world. And I was like, okay then. So at the time, I wasn't driving. I hadn't passed. No, I had, but I didn't have a car. So anyway, my brother and my mother ended up coming with me to the hospital. They dropped me at the main entrance. And I was like, I'll text you and let you know what they say. Ended up being that I did have that transplant. And yeah, it's been a little over three years now. July was three years exactly, and we're in, what, February now? So yeah, three years and a couple of months. Generally, things are stable and good and all right. That is such an amazing journey that you have been through to get to this point, to overcome so many challenges, going through three separate transplant surgeries. You've overcome so, so much in your life, Fez. I really do admire your strength and tenacity to have come through so much from such a young age. So having experienced so much and gone through so much, what advice do you have for someone who is in kidney failure and waiting for a kidney transplant? I guess my advice would be, and it may sound extremely stupid, but try and be patient. I understand it's totally and very difficult to always be patient. But I believe everyone's day will come where they get that phone call. It might be a week, it might be a month, it might be a year, it might be five years, it might be longer than that. But part of me believes that there is a match out there for everyone, whether that be from the deceased donor list, whether you find a loved one and get live donation, whether that be the paired scheme. It could even be an altruistic donor. You never know. There are amazing people out there who altruistically do donate. And that could be an avenue for someone as well. Everyone's circumstances, I totally understand, are different and unique to them. And some people may have to wait longer than others because of those circumstances, whether that be, I don't know, age, gender, weight, ethnicity, matching, tissue typing, etc. I think try and take each day as it comes. Try and find people in your life who as much as possible can understand the struggles you are going through. CKD is not very visible to the outside world. 
And I think sometimes because it's not visible, people do not think, not that they don't think it exists, but they maybe don't acknowledge the severity of the things we go through, whether that be physically or mentally. So finding people who will understand whether that be, again, whether that be family, whether that be friends, whether that be medical professionals, whether that be other patients and peer support, finding people or even a person to be able to talk to when you are having your rubbish days and your low days, I think is quite very important, especially for mental health. It can be a struggle. It can be very difficult. So I guess that would be my advice. And I guess I feel like this is said quite a lot, these things of trying to find someone to talk to, trying to find someone to, you know, confine in when you're having your bad days, etc. But yeah, I mean, for me, it helped. For others, I know it's helped. Again, it might not be for everyone in regards to talking to a medical professional, then talk to a friend, go for a, I don't know, a coffee or a water or a juice or whatever you like. Just having those avenues, I think, and having those places you can reach out to can be very important. I know that you're very active online and you're the current chair of the Renal Patient Lead Advisory Network. So for anybody that wants to follow you, what are your handles? I believe all, if not most of my handles are basically my name. So Fez Awan. On X, it's at Fezzy. So it's Fez with a Y at the end. I believe maybe on Instagram, there's an underscore between my first and second name. So Fez and then underscore Awan. But I've tried to keep it as consistent as possible when it comes to handles. So it's generally my name there may be an underscore in between and on twitter slash x whatever you want to call it now i still call it twitter so do it's I. At, yeah it's at fez but then with a y so fezzy okay so the majority of your handles are your name so fez one that's f-e-z-a-w-a-n but i will also put the links to your social media in the description box. So do you have a final word of encouragement for the listeners? I guess if there were any final words or final thoughts, it would be to try and reach out to people. I I personally am a people person. I like to talk to people, whether they be older than me, a little bit younger than me, etc., from a different background, etc. I like to put my fingers in lots of pies when it comes to CKD. Try to learn as much as I can. Again, you may not be doing it for learning. You may be doing it literally just to survive the day and just be like, oh, okay, I found out that one thing. I can try that. There's so much that goes into CKD. It can be very overwhelming especially if it's new and sudden and it's kind of just like a very new thing so take it in chunks don't pressure yourself in trying to learn everything all in one go because you won't be able to 
there are probably medical professionals that probably don't know everything and they're probably even still learning. I also think if and where possible, prevention is very important. So please go see your GPs, try and get a blood test, see what your CKD markers are, get your urine tested, drink plenty of fluids, try and be as healthy as possible. And I will admit I'm not as healthy as I should be in lifestyle, I mean, as well as having CKD. We are not perfect. We are human. We are fallible. We will have vices. But as much as you possibly can, try to look after yourselves, try to look after your loved ones, and try to be as healthy as possible and try and, you know, again, go see that GP, go get that blood test, go get that urine test. Make sure you're all right. Maybe you might only have to do it once a year because you are fine. But if you can catch it earlier, in regards to signs that you may potentially have a kidney issue, it's better to catch it earlier than later. So please try and do that if you can. Thank you so much for joining me, for sharing your story, for being so open and honest about your challenges, your ups and your downs that you face throughout your life as a CKD patient. Thank you so, so much for sharing. I know that is going to help so, so many people. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your time and inviting me onto your show as well, Dee. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every other Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope and love.